All right, good morning, guys. Um, I'm Pastor Daniel. I'm the, uh, the preaching, teaching pastor here. And um, yeah, in our bulletins, check out the Theology Corner. We've been walking through that every week. And, um, and also, just one last thing to mention, um, we're converting our chapel space into a, a prayer room with stations. It's not done yet. We'll give more vision to that as we finish. But if you have time today, go take a peek down the hall. Check it out. Um, we really want to stir in this season, especially in this season, just, just create and stir a culture of prayer here like never before. And so this is just one effort that we're taking to do that. So more on that room as it gets completed in the coming, hopefully, week or two at the most. All right, so uh, everybody should know, if you've been coming, that we were in the book of Ecclesiastes. And last week we took a, um, just a hiatus for a week and talked about uh, spiritual renewal, revival, outpouring, those kinds of words, that, that conversation. Uh, in light of some of the, the, the current events that has been going on at Christian colleges and uh, the, the feedback from you all was just so much, you know, that I had a sermon series plan post-Easter to actually go full deep into these things and in light of current events and what the Lord is doing in our country and in light of just the response from last week, I decided to um, just push Ecclesiastes on pause and we're going to just jump into this sermon series of living a life of spiritual renewal as we talk about this conversation of, you know, what, what is spiritual renewal? What is revival? If you've been a Christian for some time, maybe you've heard these words, if you're kind of new to the faith, it's these seasons where there's just a massive amount and a small amount of time of people meeting Jesus for the first time and Christians being just reawakened into their faith. And what is it? What happens? When did they come about? How did they come about? So if you missed last week's sermon, I'll cover some principles that kind of in general characterize most of these kinds of moves of the spirit in church history. And so uh, for the following, this week and for next week, I'm going to lay two more foundational stones to this whole sermon series, almost like two kind of vision um, uh, sermons, if you will, about the things that we'll be talking about in the coming months, probably up until the fall. Because we as a church, we want to be people who pursue Jesus and expect him and desire him and hunger for his spirit to transform us and to fill us and to change us. And so as we enter into this pursuit together, um, um, yeah, two weeks of foundations. And then after that, we're going to be looking at different various Christian practices of cultivating a life of spiritual renewal. Um, uh, together. And so, yeah, really excited for this. Uh, This is the first time I've ever just stopped a sermon series midway, but I felt like the Lord um, has this for us. So today is about the hope of renewal, the hope of renewal. All right. So the idea here that we're talking about today is what is the final hope of spiritual renewal in our lives? What is the final hope? And we're going to be looking at things that can veil that hope. And so we'll be diving deep into 2 Corinthians 3. Things that can veil that hope that are really no hope at all. But oftentimes as churches we can get uh, confused and um, start bringing in other things to the gospel message that can actually cloud the pure hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, um, yeah, it should be an interesting sermon. 
Um, let me pray for our time before we, we jump right in. So yeah, Lord, I, I just pray for um, uh, the words that I share would be um, just mirroring what you would have to say this morning. Lord, we're, we're beneath the authority of your scriptures. We're thankful for them that you inspired them and brought them to us. And so, Lord, give us attentive hearts this morning, open hearts to receive. Lord, if there's um, any sin present in anybody's life that needs to be turned from and repented of, Lord, would you usher just an awareness of that into this room? And Lord, I pray in this time that you would continue to make your presence, just your sweet, gentle presence known here. So give us uh, ears to hear, eyes to see you, and a heart to receive you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump into 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter 2, into chapter 3. Okay, and this, the, well, these letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote, they're called occasional letters. What does that mean? It means that for the most part, right, aside from maybe the book of Ephesians, there was a reason why he wrote them. Something happened that he was addressing when he wrote these letters. They weren't just written in, as general letters to be circulated around. Um, there was something going on at this church. This is an ancient city of Corinth um, in the Roman Empire that Paul had actually planted this church. He had written one letter to them already. This is a second letter. So the situation that he's addressing is when Paul left this church to go and plant other churches around um, the, the, the Asia Minor kind of area, modern-day Turkey, a lot of churches in modern-day Turkey, um, other teachers kind of came into this church and they started teaching things that weren't quite what Paul taught. They were not quite the foundation of the gospel. They were kind of a Jesus plus different variations. And also these teachers were, you know, very charismatic, um, a, a very uh, apparently more powerful of speakers than Paul himself was. And so their kind of abilities and skills were kind of sweeping the affections away of this church mixed with this bad doctrine. And Paul is writing a letter saying, oh no, like what is happening? Jesus is no longer central here to this church. And so um, we're kind of jumping into the early part of this conversation, beginning in chapter two, verse 12, Okay. So let's jump in here. He says, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and, uh, and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profits. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So you see a little hint of, uh, you know, frustration in his voice, right? He's like, I, I, I planted this church. I, I told you Jesus for the first time. And now you're kind of questioning, you know, the things that I taught. Like, do I need another letter of recommendation for you? And he was kind of in an autobiographical way saying, when I, we were with you, we were sincere. 
about Jesus, sincere in the message of the gospel that we preach to you. He said in verse 17, we weren't like some people, which he's referring to the other people who kind of snuck in, right? Which he gets more direct about later in the passage. He's like, some people, you know who, who are preaching, but really are just peddlers. They really just took the gospel message and trying to say, how can we you know, squeeze out a little profit from this message from these new Christians in this church of Corinth? He says, we're not, we weren't like that. We came to you with sincerity of God. And so these impressive peddlers who preach the word of God for profit, they seem to kind of leave an impression on the church, right? And so, um, and, and Paul's having to kind of reintroduce his ministry to them. So he continues on in verse two. He says, essentially, this is a proof of the work that we did here, Paul and his companions, that was authentic in the gospel. What's the proof? You are the proof. That's what he says in verse two. You yourselves, these early Christians, are our letter of recommendation God's work in them. You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The nature of this work is one that is the Holy Spirit's work in these early questions. Paul Paul says, if you need a letter of recommendation, just look at your own life. You're like a walking letter from God to those around you. It's an interesting kind of metaphor that he engages, but that's what he says. You yourselves are a walking letter written with the ink of the Holy Spirit. That as your heart's being transformed into him, people are kind of reading your life and saying, wow, that's... What happened to you? What's going on in your life? And they're seeing the outworkings of the gospel itself and the filling of the Holy Spirit as these early Christians were walking around. He says, that was the product of our ministry. And Paul says, you know, it's not like the product product and result of my ministry, says Paul, was me, right? He says, I have this confidence because it's not that I think I'm the most competent of all people here. Right? In verse 4, he says, or verse 5, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. He says, if there's any competence in me, God has only given it to me. He has made us competent, right? Competent ministers of the new covenant. And here's where we get into some, some interesting things going on here, right? He says, this ministry is not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The work of this new covenant in Christ is ultimately a work of the Spirit. For our purposes today, as we're gonna dive into now, as we seek renewal in Christ, seek um, spiritual renewal in Him, as we seek and pray for God to move in mass across the city and even across our nation, as we begin to pray and seek for such a path, we need to know the destination. We need to know what hope drives us and where we're actually heading toward. Okay, Um, it is not transformation by human effort. We're gonna look into what Paul is referring to by the quote unquote letter is what he says. And this is a reference in Paul to the the law of Moses in the Old Testament. 
But Paul says rather that it is a spirit who gives life. The spirit is a nature of the new covenant work. And a life of renewal is a work of the spirit. And the best way I can kind of set us up here to understand what Paul is saying is I'm going to read this passage from Zechariah chapter 4. Because the life in Christ through the spirit is like being plugged into a, a continuous power source, if you will. That just never actually runs out and it's available to us at all times. Even in times when our hearts is you know, sensitive and aware of the Spirit's work in our life. And even in the times that we feel like we're walking in the wilderness of prayer. Walking in the wilderness of just spiritual dryness that he actually is still there. That's the nature of our life in Christ with the Spirit. Zechariah kind of gave an image of this in the Old, the Old Testament prophet in chapter 4. And this, this, this vision, he says, The angel who talked to me came again and woke me like a man who's awakened out of a sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? He says, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on it, with seven lips of the lamps that are on top of it. All right, so, you know, electricity wasn't here, there in those days, so olive oil and, and lamp stands were very common to light rooms and olive oil was a good source for fuel for doing so. So look what's right next to these olive lamps. Verse three, Zechariah, or listen, it says, in this vision beside the lamp stand, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one on the left. All right, olive lamp, olive trees. Verse four, and I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these? In other words, what am I looking at? This is an interesting vision. What am I looking at? Verse five, then the angel who talked to me answered and said to me, do you not know? You don't know. <laughs> and he says, I said, no, my Lord. In verse six, this is a word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the guy leading Jerusalem at that point, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is a lamppost beside two olive trees and the imagery was there's always olive oil available it's always flowing it's always there's a continuous stream of fuel for this lamp to be lit and he says that is the ministry of the spirit that is the work of the spirit in the life of God's people a continuous flow of God's presence in our life not by might or by power or as Paul would say not by the letter because those things kill, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we're going to look deeper into this beginning of verse 7. Now he goes deep. Verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? And therefore, since we have such a hope, we'll come back to verse 12 there later, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, he put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds are made dull for this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. There's a lot going on here. I'm gonna try to be super simple for our purposes this morning. 
right? Letters of stone, think of, you know, Moses walking down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, kind of the, 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 the picture of, the, of the, the Torah, you know, the Old Testament law. Um, the, the Old Testament law, the Hebrew law, it, it promised life, Leviticus 18, verse 5. Those who keep the law shall live by it, but what they discovered as time went forth was that life couldn't fully be found in it because of the sickness of those trying to keep it, the sickness of their heart. That their heart was just continually learning, as Paul says, um, what not to do by learning of what to do. And then so with the sickness of the heart, they realized, oh, I I shouldn't be doing this. I kind of now really want to do that. Um, We've all been there, have we not? And so the law actually ended up exposing that our hearts are just messed up, that they're just sick and we need a new heart. The law is just kind of a burden that just ends up crushing us because our hearts are too sick to actually embody the life promised through the law, right? I mean, there's something good of that law. There was this from God. We still read it today and and garner a lot from it, but the law ultimately cannot bring about a new heart. It can only condemn our heart. The whole nature of the law in in that way was temporary. It was not permanent. So the glory of the law is really like anything else in our life um, today that's ultimately temporary. It's ultimately a fading glory. Anything that we may cling to or, or desire or want in our lives that we try to find life in, ultimately in this life today, if it's temporary, right, this glory is going to be fading. You know, sex is temporary, wealth is temporary, it can be lost. Uh, the pursuits of material things, those things are temporary, right? And this is what's important to understand. Isaiah 40, verse uh, 6 through 8, it says, A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what stands forever? The word of the Lord stands forever. In the world of temporary things, it's only the word of God and the work of God that stands as something of permanence, something that cannot be blown away, something that a fire cannot destroy, right? Our houses can catch on fire and we can lose everything. Indeed, I've had friends that experienced that, but not the work of the Lord, not the work of his spirit, Right? They cannot be simply blown away through a hurricane. The Spirit of God is seeking to do a work in our lives that is much more permanent. In the same letter, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 22, that the Spirit is given to us as a guarantee. As a guarantee for what? It's commercial language. It's transactional language that was used in buying and selling of the day. So the idea is that when Jesus was given over for our sins, when he satisfied the payment on the cross, conquering death through his resurrection, this great renewal project began of God. It began the first day on the Easter morning, and it will end when he returns, when he is seeking to renew all things. Even you and I are going to be raised just like Christ read 1 Corinthians 15. Our flesh and bones will take on an eternal state like the state of the resurrected Christ when sin and death and tears will all be gone away and nothing will separate us from the love of God. But in this temporary fading world that we're living in, the spirit of God is given to those who have faith in Christ and he's trying to pour in a glimpse of heaven. We talk about this all the time. Right, Jesus' main message was the kingdom of God is here 
And so the permanence of heaven, the permanence of that future age to come, he's ushering into our lives today through glimpses. Never perfectly. The, the theologians out there call this the already not yet work. Like, you know, we're, we're experiencing heavens, realities of heaven today as we're with Jesus, but not fully. We're not quite there yet until we, we go, right? Um, he renews us, but sin's always going to be present. We'll never be perfected in this day until the day that he returns. So heaven's kind of in breaking the kingdom of God is breaking into our lives through his spirit today that is giving us just glimpses of that permanence, that future permanent life that we will have in Christ, right? So anything of human effort today, it's what the dividing line kind of comes in Paul's mind. Anything through human effort, like the law of Moses that it required, this life of God and life with God, it's not, it's not accessible, the fullness of life in God is not accessible if you have to work really hard for it and get it on your own, right? It's not accessible. Um, Moses had to cover his face to veil the glory of God because it wasn't quite ready to be out there, right? But in today's world, it's a different story. Rather look at how that's the case. Such a foretaste of glory is available to us in Christ through his spirit today. But why is Paul, why did Paul digress here? That's a very complex little paragraph of theology there. But this, if you fell asleep, wake up, you're still here, you're good. Okay, thank you. I see some of you going like, uh. here we go. Why would Paul digress here? Why does he go down that little rabbit trail? Now we need to be careful readers of scripture. In Emmanuel, we read the Bible carefully, right? At the beginning, he was speaking in our passage of the need to kind of like, you know, reprove himself to this church because of these other teachers that had kind of snuck in there. As the letter progresses, you learn more, but there had been some other teachers and leaders who came through after Paul planted this church and took leave. We talked about this, right? And they were peddling the word of God for a prophet, okay? So to read this one more time um, in, in, in chapter 2, he says, we're the Roma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. He says in verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit, but they speak in Christ with sincerity. So that veil of Moses Paul was speaking of, the veil that keeps the glory of God covered from onlookers, needs to be understood. And Paul's kind of mine here. It's kind of the veil that those prophet-seeking teachers were bringing to that church. They themselves were also veiling the glory of God through their own ministry. They were probably teaching that the Old Testament law was needed to be saved. And so they literally had that veil back on. But also their, their false motives for ministry was also putting a veil over the gospel. A veil over the work of God, over the glory of God in that church, in the church in Corinth. Um, and so we're getting to the heart of today's sermon because if true spiritual renewal is to come into our life and into this church, as we pray for an outpouring of the Spirit of God leading to a renewal in our lives and just um, uh, many to come to know Jesus for the very first time, we need to catch a vision of ultimately what God is up to in our lives, what he wants us to do now and in the future and the things that veil, the things that can veil the work of God, that can remove the hope and confuse the hope that sadly, I believe, so many churches can get wrapped up in. So what do I mean by this? How can we put a veil like Moses over the glory of God as the church in America? So I want to go through a list of things that I, I'm not claiming to be some kind of prophet here, but I really truly believe a lot of segments of the church need to hear these things, including myself. 
We need to pay attention to these things. If God is to break out into this nation to a new movement from the spirit with the gospel shining forth, we need to pay attention to ways that we may potentially be today veiling the work of God like Moses, like those peddlers. So yeah, um, let's dive into this. Um, I want this church to be a place of sincerity and truth. Paul talked about the hope that comes from the work of the spirit. And so he says, you know, to, to the people who are looking for Jesus, that's a message of hope for them. It's a fragrance of Christ of life, you know? And so what, the first question I want to ask you guys until we dive into this is this. Um, is what takes place here in our church a hopeful ministry? Are we a hopeful presence for those looking for hope? Can we look at a ministry and say, this, this ministry is one of providing hope for me? If I brought my neighbors who were searching over, it could provide hope for them because Jesus lies at the center of that hope. A church that is all about Jesus and sincerity and truth will be that place of hope. And I'm very confident that there's a lot of people in the city of Wilmington right now that are looking for hope. There's a whole lot of people that are hungry, looking in a lot of places for hope, but they can't see the light of the gospel if we veil it. And so what I wanna call is this little math equation I hate math. Anybody like math in this room? Wow. People like math. I'm always blown away by that, right? My math equation is Jesus plus fill in the blank. If a church engages in that equation, Jesus plus fill in the blank, we're throwing a veil over the gospel. If it's Jesus plus something, the veil is automatically thrown over the gospel. Jesus plus anything does not cultivate hope in a church, does not cultivate life in the church or in the, in the Christian, right? Jesus plus anything ultimately is not going to have hope for people beneath it. If we truly want an outpouring of the spirit, right, we need to, to be honest about this. And so here's some, here's some things I want to I address for the church, hopefully that we can pay attention to. Um, Every generation, uh, the early reformers said the church is reforming, always reforming. We're always wanting to reform the church. So here we go. What are some areas of reform? I genuinely believe that we as a church in 2023 should not try to compete with the quality of, you know, show projection, lights and cameras at, say, the Opera House downtown. We don't need to compete with that. Nor should the children's ministry here, for example, try to compete with the children's museum at the riverfront or like a trampoline park. It's just not going to be as fun as that right? It's just not. Um, if, if people come to our church, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a fun kids ministry, but if that's why they come, our kids have a lot of fun there. What are they here for? They're here for the fun with little Jesus slapped on, right? No, they should be here because in our kids ministry, it's about Jesus. Our kids learn about Jesus. And they may dance and have some fun in the process, but is Jesus the center, right? Are we known for having a service and a gathering on Sundays that Jesus is the center? Is that the reputation? Or is there other reputations that, that, um, you know, uh, that may come? Um, I don't want the sermons here to be known as being motivational and practical for life. There's a whole lot of better motivational preachers on YouTube. Way better than I'll ever motivate you to do anything. Like, when we motivated, go to YouTube, okay? I truly believe, however, that Jesus Christ and the kind of person that he wants to make you into through his spirit is a way better motivator 
for following him, for being here on Sunday mornings. I believe the work he wants to do in your life is way better than any work of any preacher that he can say from his own mouth. I want the sermons and the teaching here to be Jesus and Jesus only that the Spirit of God can truly work in your life. And on the back of that, we should not be known, any church should not be known as a personality-driven church. There's just no hope in that. You can't cast all of your hope on a person in this world. People will fail us, and we know that. If you're in community here, you're right, in any church, somebody's going to offend you. Somebody's going to sin against you. It's called being human before Jesus returns. You're leaders, right? We're not going to be perfect leaders. Don't cast all of your hope. Don't attach our names to the name of Emmanuel Church, right? Um, that will ultimately bring a church to ruin. We want to be known as a church that preaches about Jesus because that is a church of hope. And um, one more issue I want to talk about, which is a hot button issue. Can I, can, can I, can I make you guys tight under the collar for a minute? Is that okay? Um, what else can veil the gospel, veil the work of the Spirit in the church today? Is attaching the gospel to political ideology. And I'm talking left and right. Because if we just assume that our political ideology is shared by Jesus, okay, that he was either a Republican or a Democrat, and we buy into the political games, because we all know that, you know, everybody makes a lot of money if Republicans and Democrats hate each other, and they would just like to drive that. And so it's just a com complete de demonizing of either or party, right? And if Christians think, well, this ideology belongs to Jesus, and so the church needs to defend this ideology or vice versa, you know what's going to happen in the church? We're going to put a veil over the gospel because we will find ourselves just as divided and angry as anyone else out there in our nation who is caught up in political ideology. And the hard thing about that too is if we partake in that, we'll actually find ourselves even racially divided. Hear me out. 85% of white evangelical Protestants voted for Trump in the Republican Party in 2020. 92% of black America voted for the Democrat, for Biden. And Hispanic voters is even more diverse. We talk about often the vision revelation, right? All nations together, every tongue under heaven, worshiping our Lord and Savior in heaven. And Jesus said on earth as it is in heaven. There's a reason why that divide is there. I'm telling you guys, we read the same Bible as the Christians who are Hispanic, white, but we all read the same Bible. Politically, we may have different views. And that's possible even reading this Bible. It's possible. So what can happen though, is in a church, we could have a Republican and a Democrat locking arms in the pew, worshiping Jesus together here, refusing to let politics divide us. And we can be the strangers in America 2023 where that's like the only place that happens. <laughs> I'm telling you, that will make us peculiar and weird. And that's good because Christians have always been peculiar and weird. We have. That's kind of why they killed Jesus. They couldn't figure him out. They didn't know what was going on with him, right? Are we willing to do this, to be open to this? If we want the work of renewal to really take place in us, not veil the gospel with Jesus plus something. The reality is, as we move on here, 
anything Jesus plus to gather people in is false growth. Like imagine for a second, okay, I had a sign out in front of Pennsylvania Avenue that said free iPads to the first, or iPhones to the first 500 people who visit for the first time this Sunday. Okay, church is packed out. And I call my pastor friends. God is moving. We had 500 first time visitors here Sunday. (laughs) You laugh because you see the folly of that. But that's, that's a silly example, but those things I just mentioned, like if we attach ourselves to them to try to grow our church, we're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. And that's gonna fail us. We'll run out of money because the iPhones are expensive, right? <laughs> but all those other things will ultimately fail us. We need to be about Jesus and Jesus alone. So that's the negative side of things. What's the positive side, all right? What does uh, renewal look like when that veil is removed? How is that veil removed? And what is the result in the life of the church? In verse 16, we can, we can move on. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now where the spirit of the Lord is, now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. What happens when we turn back to Jesus? What happens when all of our hope gets reoriented towards the gospel and you and I and our churches place the gospel at the center? What happens? Any veil that may cloud the message of the gospel is taken away. Any kind of wall that may be prohibiting the spirit of God for having all of us begins crumbling away. We realize that the brightest part of this church here is not anything of this building or anything of our, or our skills as leaders or personalities or our wonderful music. All those things are great, but the brightest part Part of our church. The only hope of this church is the good news of Jesus Christ and the hope of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life of you and how he wants to transform you into ever increasing glory. That is the hope of Emmanuel Church, friends. The health of this church is measured by the depth of our desire for Jesus, our holiness as the Spirit of God shapes us and transforms us. It's measured in how we love for our neighbors and how we defend those who need defending in our city and our obedience to share the gospel with those who needs it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he talked about in his own day, he said, you know, the, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to um, Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called by Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ crucified is our message. The raised Jesus is our only hope. In verse 17, Paul speaks of his work as a work of the Spirit as something that's ever-increasing. It's an interesting language he uses there, right? It's ever-increasing work as we are transformed into his likeness. In other words, I believe this is a hope of renewal. That when it enters our lives, when it enters our churches, enters our ministries, we become about Jesus and Jesus alone and fight for that, for not being distracted and fight for that. We are giving ourselves over to Christ not for a one-time event of a special experience, 
but for an ever-increasing work until the final breath that we give in this life comes or until he returns because he's never done with us. He always wants to transform us. He always continually wants to transform us. So as we pray for spiritual renewal to come to our nation, the final goal of that is just that, that we are going to be transformed in ever-increasing glory by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So a couple of things on the back end of our sermon here. Um, um, to, to reference the, what's going on at Asbury one more time. Um, it's breaking out in schools, you know, these, um, these prayer services that are kind of breaking out. And um, maybe you've heard about these, talked about these last week. Um, they're estimating almost over 100,000 people had been in and out of that little bitty town in Kentucky where that school was in the 10-day period of these renewal um, kind of outpouring events that were taking place. But if that's the spirit of the Lord working, which I, I think it is, and this isn't some kind of authoritative thing here, but just... I think there's clues here that we need to pay attention to of how he's working right now in 2023. It's very informative for us, okay? The first thing is the outpouring of the spirit that took place at Asbury, which is still seems to be spreading, I don't think it came from the $100 million Super Bowl ads. Hear me out. It didn't cost anything. It just happened when like a dozen 19-year-olds just kept praying. It didn't happen when TV news cameras showed up. They just kept praying. And suddenly, it was the name of Jesus that got so famous that what he was doing there, that the publicity was just built on Jesus alone. It didn't cost $100 million. Maybe it's very simple, right? Want people to meet Jesus? Maybe it's just simple. Are you hungry for Jesus? Are you? He's going to use your hunger to draw more people to himself. Maybe that's as simple as it is. That's a little harder than spending $100 million on Super Bowl commercial ads, right? First, uh, part two here. The service that launched the revival came from the most unremarkable time of musical worship, from a very unremarkable sermon preached by a representative from the Christianary Ministry, Missionary Alliance named Zach, who literally, the first words of his sermon was, I'm Zach and I'm back, all right? There's nothing remarkable about his teaching, if you heard it, that sparked this renewal movement. Because we as Americans love to know, who did it? Where is he at? Who is she? I'm going to chase after them. I think God is like saying, stop. I can use anybody to do what I want to do. I can use you to do what I want to do. You don't have to be some famous celebrity person. The church does not have to attach themselves to leverage themselves on the platform of a celebrity personality to make Jesus famous and see his work spread. It doesn't have to be that way. He can do whatever he wants and he can use you to bring about a massive work of God. Simple as that. Um, everything was marked by a, a quiet spirit, right? And so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, could spiritual renewal really be that simple? Is the Lord telling us that the hope of renewal in our lives, of this ever-going transformation of the spirit, the hope remains in the simple, stripped-down good news of Jesus Christ? And right now, I want to call the worship team back up. The hope of renewal is a Jesus-centered ministry, trying with all their might to lead people into a hunger for, for just complete spirit-filled transformation in Christ. Um, that's the first cornerstone of renewal that I wanted to talk about this morning. The end goal, I wanted to give you guys a vision of the end goal before we step onto the path of seeking spiritual renewal here. We have to know where we're going, and that's where we're going, a life that is ever transformed 
And Jesus, Paul said, that is our hope and that is our hope here. So a couple of questions as we close. Have you veiled the gospel in your own heart by trying to attach Jesus plus something in your own life? Have you married yourself to political ideology, for example, that when you think of Jesus, you think of how to vote in the next election? Number two, are you here really truly seeking a Jesus-only participation? Is there something here I'm trying to figure out how to verbalize this question. Just let me fumble for a minute. Is there something here at this church that if taken away, you'd be like, I guess I'm out. I understand the Lord can move us around from one church, and I understand that. And sometimes it's, he calls us to, and it's necessary. I know there's a tension here, but that's okay. Tension's fine. Um, sometimes we can become attached to a church for the wrong reasons for a really all-star stellar ministry or certain leader or whatever it might be. And suddenly that thing's taken. You're like, well, I don't know why I'm even here anymore. I want to bring that up to you. Why are you here? And I hope that we are leading you to Jesus, not to a stellar ministry somewhere, this or that, right? But have that question in your own hearts as we step into spiritual renewal, right? It's a hard question. Um, we had a small fire in our sanctuary mid-sermon last summer, for those of you who remember that. Small reminder that buildings can burn up just like that. Jesus has to be what keeps us here. As we continue the sermon series, the last part here, the question that will remain open for all of us is this. Are you hungry for the Spirit of God to make you whole and complete and ever-increasing glory? Are you hungry for that? Are you hungry for the work of God? Do you desire the work of God in your life? Are you unsatisfied where you are right now? Is there, unho- is there a holy unrest in your spirit that says, Jesus, I just want more of you? There's a call in the end, a revelation. In verse 17, in chapter 22, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come, the bride is a church. It's a fascinating verse. And I believe what, what's happening here is this end times vision that John saw, right? When these, these Christians in heaven who were kind of, they, see, they saw the end. They saw just the culmination of all things. And they were in just their beautiful union with Christ in heaven for all of eternity. And they're saying, you don't even know what's coming, but right now you are invited to that. So the spirit and the bride is still saying, come. Come, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. May God this morning stir in your hearts a thirst for the waters of life. Jesus, we we thank you for this time this morning as we have this time of worship, Lord to keep our eyes on the things that truly matter. Lord, help us to always repent and turn if we get just, you know, lost along the way or want to add more things in instead of just you, Lord. Make us aware of that, Lord. Keep us sensitive, Lord. Help us just to truly practice, Lord, just living in awareness of your presence day in and day out. Holy Spirit, transform these people into your likeness and to your image, Lord. May this just be a season of us as a church where holiness just increases, Lord, our hunger for you increases, our zeal for you multiplies. And I pray that our times together in the oncoming months will just be times of sweetness 
where your presence is felt. And it may just drive us, Lord, to live out this kingdom life day to day. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.